Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Why do we get fat? That is one of life's greatest questions. And today's guest, Gary Tobbs, science writer and best-selling author, is here to tell us what he found in the research. His latest book, Why We Get Fat, is an eye-opening, paradigm-shattering ex- examination of what makes us fat. And I invite you to read his book, Why We Get Fat, to learn more about the problems and the flaws with the research, and also with our common beliefs of calories in and calories out. I will also post one of the, his online talks on the show notes at How She Really Does It, Gary Tobbs, where you can watch Gary talk about the problems and flaws with the research. And in today's interview, we're going to discuss what he has learned about what makes us fat, saturated fats, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and what you can do. Gary, thanks for being on my show today. Well, thanks for having me. So it's been a few years now since the book has been out. And um, what have you learned about what makes us fat? Okay, well, let's, we can start with what I've learned about what doesn't make us fat. Okay. Um, and that's that we don't get fat merely because we eat too much and exercise too little. So this was sort of the, uh, this is the first half of my book, and it's, it was kind of the revelation that I came upon in doing my research. Actually, it was one of the primary revelations. Um, yeah, since the 1950s or so, the idea has been that obesity is just this problem of energy balance. So you take in more energy than you expend, you get fat, that's pretty much all you have to know about. And so the advice we get from our doctors, our friends, the public health authorities, the people who comment in the newspapers on every obesity article that's written is it's all about just like you got to learn to eat in moderation. So if you're overweight and obese, you got to eat less. And you got to get off the couch and move, as Michelle Obama's you know uh, childhood obesity program exhorts. And what's fascinating in this is, so this is the idea is this is based on the laws of physics, you know, the laws of thermodynamics, and if they just say if you take in more energy, then you've got to get bigger, taking more energy than you expend. And what I realized in doing my research is that this is kind of obvious, right? Um, you know, if a, more people enter a room than leave it, that room's going to get more crowded, so that's pretty clear. But it actually tells us virtually nothing about why fat tissue takes up excess fat and why it does it in some people and not others and why it does it in some places and not others. So, for instance, you know, men get fat above the waist, women get fat below the waist on average or, you know. But that doesn't tell you what's happening in those fat cells that makes men's fat cells in their gut expand with fat and women's fat cells in what is you know, uh, technically called the gluteal region, expand with fat. And what I learned in my research was prior to World War II, there would, when all major medical research was done in Europe, German and Austrian clinicians had come to embrace a different hypothesis of obesity. They thought it was a hormonal defect. Mm-hmm. You know, that something was triggering the hormones and enzymes that locked fat away in fat tissue in some people and in some tissue and not in other people and not in other tissues. 
and they just had to figure out what that was. And unfortunately, they didn't have the technology uh, pre-war to do that, and then the war came, and this European school of thought vanished, and nobody wanted to read the German language medical literature, and nobody wanted to quote pompous German researchers and what they believed was obviously the case. And so after the war, we embraced this idea that it was all about, in effect, gluttony and sloth. But by 1960, we had discovered the, uh, we created the tools necessary to figure out what it is that uh, regulates the accumulation of fat and fat cells. And it turned out that that's the hormone insulin, primarily. And we secrete insulin primarily in response to carbohydrates. And if people had, if the research community had been doing their job properly, and not just assuming that fat people are just eat too much and can't control their urges like thin people. By the mid-1960s, they would have come up with this idea that it's the carbohydrate content of the diet that makes us fat. So refined grains and easily digestible starches and sugars have this unique property of making us fat because of their effect on this hormone insulin. And... That's basically the idea that I put forth in this book, which is that if you just kind of pay attention to biology and not physics, and obesity is a biology problem, it's not a physics problem, and if you do that, then you end up with this idea that the specific nutrients in the diet are what drive obesity, um, what drive you to put on excess fat, and those nutrients then are the carbohydrates that we consume. And if you eat a diet where you don't eat those foods, so now you replace the carbs with fat because fat doesn't stimulate insulin secretion. Um, you know, in most cases, people lose weight pretty effortlessly and they maintain weight loss pretty effortlessly. So I had read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true, that um, you got into this because you, would, you were trying to figure out you were exercising, you were eating, but the weight loss wasn't coming off. And then you kind of looked into this lowering your carbs and eating more um, meats and fats and weight came off. Is that true? Yeah, no, actually that's, um, I, I did do this diet as an experiment at one point, mm -hmm. but I got into this in my specialty. I'm, I'm a science journalist. I'm not a nutritionist. Mm -hmm. There are people out there going, damn right, he's not a nutritionist. Um, but I got into this. I was, my career beginning in the eighties, I, I was, uh, I wrote a couple of books on scientific controversies, and I got obsessed with this idea about how hard it is to do science right, um, how easy it is to get the wrong answer. And so even the, the magazine articles I were writing tended to be investigations into controversial issues where I could try and establish which side the good science you know, fell. And then in the early 90s, some of my friends in the physics community said, if you're interested in, in bad science, what they call pathological science, um, you should look at the stuff in public health because that stuff, science, is terrible. Mm -hmm. So I, I moved into writing about public health, and I kind of meandered around the field for a while, and then in the late 90s, I stumbled into some of these nutrition controversies, starting with this idea that salt causes high blood pressure, and I spent a year better part of a year working on a single magazine article for the journal Science in which I interviewed about 80 researchers and administrators trying to understand this very vitriolic controversy over whether we should eat more or less salt, or not more salt, whether we should 
restrict the amount of salt we're eating in our diets and that that'll lower blood pressure and reduce hypertension, prevent heart disease. And it seems like obviously we should all be eating low-salt diets, but the, the experts are actually very divided on this issue. And while I was doing that story, one of the worst scientists I'd ever interviewed, and I'd interviewed some terrible scientists in my life, one of the worst, took credit not just for getting Americans to eat less salt, but for getting Americans to eat less fat and less eggs, lower their cholesterol. And I literally got off the phone with this guy, and I called up my editor at Science, and I said, one of the worst scientists I've ever interviewed just took credit for getting Americans to eat less salt, less fat, and less eggs. So when I'm done with the salt story, I'm going to write about fat and low-fat diets and cholesterol, and I, don't need, I have no idea what the story is. But if this guy was involved in any substantive way, there has to be a good story there. And one of the lessons I had learned from my earlier work in physics and writing about nuclear and people who discovered non-existent phenomena is that bad scientists never get the right answer. So I literally went into this field with no preconceptions whatsoever. Just like everyone else, I was living on a very low-fat diet. I lived in Los Angeles at the time. And I was probably eating a diet that was around 20% fat. And I lived a couple blocks from the beach. So I was working out on average an hour a day because that's what you do in Los Angeles when you don't work. You, you know, in New York, you go shopping and sit in cafes. In Los Angeles, you exercise. Mm -hmm. And it's true. I was gaining a couple pounds a year through my 30s. And I assumed this was my fate. But that's not why I went into this. I went into this just because I was fascinated by the controversy. And then this glimmer of an idea that if this terrible scientist was involved, there was probably something interesting to write about dietary fat. And um, then as I was doing that story, as a freelance journalist, one thing, um, you often do multiple stories at once just to keep an income flowing. So I was also writing an article for Discover Magazine on the mathematics of the stock market. And I was up in Boston interviewing an economist at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I started telling him a little bit about this dietary fat story I was researching. And he said, oh, if you're researching a story on dietary fat, you have to try the Atkins diet. He said his um, collaborator, who's at the Wharton School of Business in Philadelphia, his, that, that fellow's father had lost 200 pounds on the Atkins diet. And, and this guy at MIT who was Asian-American said he lost 40 pounds basically just giving up white rice. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, I'll try it. You know, I was, didn't have any children. I wasn't worried about getting a heart attack in the short term. And I went back to Los Angeles and I started eating eggs and bacon for breakfast and you know, uh, half a roast chicken for lunch with some green vegetables and piece of meat for dinner with green vegetables and um, it was fascinating because the weight just falls off you you know I, as I said I had been eating a very low fat healthy diet I'd been working out an hour a day I you know gaining two pounds a year and I, again I just thought this is what happens to you as you get older right and suddenly you change the way you eat and you seem to be eating tons of food, which is completely contradictory to all diets as I understood them. And then you're eating all this fat, which is supposed to kill you anyway, which is a different issue we should discuss. And lo and behold, the weight falls off. I think I lost 25 pounds in about six weeks. And it was just, it was fascinating. And it didn't, the interesting thing is it didn't really influence what I wrote at the time. 
Um, but that phenomena always stayed with me as I moved into this. Like, why is it you could eat so much food and yet lose weight that had been stubbornly resisting any weight loss until then? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fascinating question because it's so against the conditioning that we've all, you know, grown up with, or at least if you're, I'm 40, so that's definitely what I've grown up with. Um, you know, calories in, calories out, and stay away from saturated fats. Well, and so that's the idea is you, you know, and that's what I was doing in LA. And I, I get emails from people like this all the time because we're the ones who you're doing everything you're supposed to do, right? So I didn't like dieting because when you're dieting, you're starving all the time. I mean, almost by definition. Mm-hmm. I remember one time in New York, one of the many times I was trying to keep my weight down and, um, I was sitting in a restaurant. I was on one of these things you know, where I'm eating a, I don't know, I'm just trying to eat less, right? So I have a small lunch, uh, and um, I'm sitting with this friend of mine, and we're chatting, and the woman sitting there, apparently I must have been staring at the plate of the woman sitting next to me, <laughs> and finally says, do you want some? <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but the fact is I did, because I was, you know, I had ate, eaten a very unsatisfying meal. And I mean, these diets, they worked for the short term, but you're always going back on them because the weight always came back. And while you're on them, you're obsessed. You're thinking about food all the time. Like, when can I have my next meal? When can I have my next snack? How much can I eat? You know, can I have 12 potato chips or should I limit it to eight? Um, Can I allow myself a little bit of ice cream after dessert? Um, I mean, after dinner, you know, how many calories are in the soda? I just went to the gym and I just burned 400 calories on the Stairmaster. Could I afford to drink this bottle of Gatorade, which is 360 calories mm-hmm. or 320 that I'm going to finish in two minutes and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's this sort of constant state of deprivation, work, calculation, and lo and behold, five years have passed and you're 10 years heavier than you were five years ago. And then you switch to this different way of eating. And again, I had no idea why it worked at the time. I don't think I read Atkins' book or anything like that. I just had this advice of this economist, try it, it's fascinating. And suddenly you're eating everything you want. So instead of bacon, you know, breakfast being a a small bowl of Special K with skim milk and half a banana, um, suddenly it's, you know, three or four scrambled eggs with a side of bacon and a side of sausage. Um, so, okay, granted, it might kill you, but it's an enormous amount of food compared to what you eat. And then you go to lunch, you're not hungry, you get to lunch, half a roast chicken. I think many people would consider that a wonderful portion, right, for a diet. So it's just an entirely different way of eating. And again, I can explain, I now know perfectly well why it works so well, but it's contrary to everything that we had come to believe about what it took to lose weight or to maintain weight. And it's still contrary to the conventional wisdom, which is what makes us such a challenge from the journalistic perspective. So why we get fat, I think came out in 2010. Is that correct? Uh, very end of the year, 2010, okay. so 2010, 2011. So it's been a couple of years. And prior to that, you had the bestseller, good calories, bad calories. And right. So what has there been, have you seen even a shift or a tweak in nutrition, in the information that's going out there? Is, are you seeing changes 
from this work? Well, the short answer is, yeah, very much so. I, I, on the one hand, this idea that refined grains and sugars should be minimized in a, in a healthy diet is almost conventional wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, every once in a while, I, and, and when I first wrote about that back in 2002, where I had this very controversial cover story for the New York Times Magazine called uh, What If Fat Doesn't Make You Fat? And the idea was that the problem in modern diets are the sugars and refined grains, not the fat content. Um, and that's now becoming almost conventional wisdom. So, you know, the sugar industry and the corn refiners still argue that, that sugars are fine. But for the most part, you know, somebody puts you on a diet, they're going to try to get you off sugar and white bread as part of the diet. Um, and to the extent that now sometimes when I lecture about it, people will say to me, well, you're not saying anything we all don't know. And I want to say, yeah, but one reason you know it is because I've been saying this for 10 years now. Um, but I just caught a wave. I mean, that shift was happening in 2002, which is what I was writing about. And in part because of my writing and in part because of that wave was breaking, it's, you know, it's now, the question is, then what do you do? So you stop eating sugar and refined grains and you eat a better quality carbohydrate. So carbohydrates with more fiber in them that takes the technical term is they have a lower glycemic index. Um, and you avoid sugars. And is that good enough to be healthy or lean? And the answer is for most people, probably not. And what you want to do, then you get into this question of how much food you can eat and whether dietary fat saturated fat in particular should be avoided also. Um, and we could discuss that shortly. But the other thing that's happening since my book came out, um, I often get emails now from people who say, my, you know, I read your book because my physician gave it to me. Or Amazon reviews where people say, you know, I got this book because my doctor suggested I read it. And that never would have happened. I mean, that was so far from being possible five years ago. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you. Um, researchers are taking up these ideas and writing articles about them, which is very cool to see. Um, again, there's been a lot of clinical trial research about the healthfulness and effectiveness of, of eating these carbohydrate-restricted diets, and that's in part what I've been writing about, so that was already happening. But people are beginning to have a much better understanding of the Again, this issue that we're talking about biology and not physics when we're discussing why diets work or not. And then, um, for instance, one of the things I did with a colleague, a uh, medical doctor, Peter Atia in San Diego, we started a not-for-profit organization mm-hmm. called the Nutrition Science Initiative. And the goal is to test some of these ideas in very well-controlled, rigorous clinical studies. So in effect, do the kind of experimental trials that should have been done in the 1960s had the medical research community been thinking about this in the right way. Um, And we now have support, for instance, from a philanthropist in Texas, a foundation um, that's given us almost $40 million to do research. And we've got three groups that we're funding at uh, universities and institutions on the East and West Coast that should really do some pretty profound clinical trials to be able to settle some of, begin to settle some of these controversies. So there's sort of a, a you know, a, a lot that's beginning to happen, but as I say to my, my colleagues, you know, maybe 10 years ago, Effectively, 0% of the medical 
research community understood this. I didn't understand it. They didn't understand it. Um, now we may be up to 1%. That's a huge relative increase, but that's still only 1 100th of the people you want to get it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's, it's hard to judge. Maybe we're at 1%, maybe we're at 3%, maybe we're only at a tenth of a percent. It's a lot more than used to, to get it, but it's a lot less than have to get it. So. What do you mean a lot less than have to get it? Well, then, you know, what you want ideally, and with the not-for-profit we've discussed, for instance, we have these discussions about what we would consider, what we'd be happy to see as, as a victory. And so you're trying to change the world, in effect, trying to get them to acknowledge that at the very least, the science behind our understanding of what constitutes a healthy diet is, is not good enough and has to be done better. And then one likely scenario is the ideas that I describe in my books is correct. Um, and if, if we do the science right, we'll know if that's true. Um, assuming it is true, assuming that obesity you know, is not an energy balance problem, it's not just about taking more calories than you expend, but it's actually this hormonal defect triggered by the carbohydrate content of the diet. So certain carbs are literally fattening. Then what, you, what I want to see happen is every time you go to the doctor, anyone who goes to the doctor and is overweight and obese, and instead of being told to eat less and exercise more, the doctor say, look, don't eat these foods because these foods are causing the problem. And every hospital administrator gets it, that, that certain foods are literally fattening and they're foods that have a high sugar content and a high carbohydrate content. And if they want you know, a healthier patient population, they've got to feed them diets that don't have those foods in them and, and advise them correctly on how to eat. And insurers understand this and, and wellness providers understand this and uh, the U.S. government understands it so we're not subsidizing these foods that are, are mm-hmm. deleterious. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's the kind of... So when I say 1% of the people get it, I mean, maybe 1% of the physicians... 1% of the hospital administrators, you know, 1% of the dietitians and the diabetes specialists, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot more have to get it before it's, it's common knowledge. To get and to that, people can, you know, get the right advice. To that tipping point. Um, yeah. With, with this idea of, I want to go into saturated fats, because what about people who have pre-existing um, heart conditions or family, you know, with genetic heart conditions. What have you seen with saturated fats in people that already have this versus, you know, you were talking, you were young when you try this, no kids. Okay. Right. But what about other people who have, you know, more obstacles maybe? Well, and this is, this is one of the real challenges here. And this is where it becomes a leap of faith and, um, you know, it's crazy that we have to rely on a journalist for nutritional advice. The argument I make in my book, there's, there's several areas. First of all, this idea that, that heart disease comes about because we eat too much saturated fat, which raises our cholesterol, raises our LDL cholesterol. That's 1960s, 1970s era science. So one of the things that I describe in Good Calories, Bad Calories, is what many people say is far too greater length, um, <clears throat> is that we locked in this idea that 
saturated fat, raises LDL cholesterol, causes heart disease. That was locked in in the 1970s. We started giving dietary advice and government recommendations based on in the 1980s. And as soon as we did that, we made it very hard to back away from that advice as the science progressed, as the science evolved. The fact is the science did evolve, and it evolved in profoundly in ways that could barely be predicted back then. So one of the things we learned is about this condition called metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome is a, a cluster of metabolic disorders that all seem are all related to a condition called insulin resistance and seems very much to be driven by the carbohydrate content of the diet. And for a huge proportion of the American public, and it's hard to say exactly what that number is, but you know, far more than half, they, those who have heart, heart attacks will have heart attacks because the metabolic hormonal disruptions that you see in metabolic syndrome will be the cause. And metabolic syndrome has nothing to do with the saturated fat content of the diet. It's driven entirely by the carbohydrate content of the diet. And there's a lot of evidence out there implicating sugar as uh, the fundamental trigger of this problem. So if you just take the science forward from the 1970s when it got locked in, you end up with this idea, in effect, that saturated fat is harmless, maybe even beneficial for most people. And again, that the things you should be restricting to avoid heart disease are the carbohydrates in the diet. The problem is when people go on low-fat, low-saturated fat diets, they replace them with carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, the carbohydrates that sort of exacerbate this insulin resistance metabolic syndrome issue. So again, that's one of the reasons, one of the, the, the uh, ideas I suggest in my books were um, when we decided that a low-fat diet is a healthy diet, we started advocating that people replace the fat and saturated fat in their diets with um, easily digestible carbohydrates, the base of the food guide pyramid, you know, is rice and pasta and potatoes and bread, which are all foods that the biology would tell you are uniquely fattening, are probably drivers of insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, and in fact, through the 1960s, were considered to be uniquely fattening. One of the lines that I um, quote in both my books is from a British Journal of Nutrition article in 1963, written by one of the leading, two leading British dietitians. And the first sentence of the article is, every woman knows that carbohydrates are fattening. Um, but then we took this idea that carbohydrates are fattening, and because of the low fat, the idea that dietary fat causes heart disease, we turned these fattening carbohydrates to heart-healthy diet foods, and that's what we think we should eat. Um, and... During this process, sugar's kind of got a free pass, and that's another sort of take on this. But when you're avoiding dietary fat and saturated fat, so you imagine yogurt is kind of the paradigmatic example here. Um, in the 1980s, the idea is that saturated fat causes heart disease, and it's going to drive obesity because it's such a dense nutrient. So yogurt makers start taking saturated fat out of their yogurt. Mm -hmm. So now what you end up is basically you get watered down smaller portions of fat, so you have to replace the saturated fat you took out with something. And so what you replace it with are <laughs> fruits and high fructose corn syrup. 
So now you've got a product that's got a little bit less fat, tiny bit less calories, and a lot more sugar than it ever had before. Mm-hmm. And you can market it as a heart-healthy diet food, which is what happened. And so you end up with this food that, by the 1970s science, you know, maybe it'll prevent heart, maybe it'll help you prevent heart disease if you eat that instead of it, yogurt in its natural form. Um, it's not going to make you thinner because you've replaced the fat, which doesn't stimulate insulin secretion, with the carbohydrates and the sugar that, over the long term, does. Um, and if you pay attention to metabolic syndrome, this is now a product that's likely to be worse for metabolic syndrome rather than better. So by 21st century science, you've taken a healthy food and turned it into an unhealthy food. And it's happened in the 1980s because people think this is a, you know, they, the opposite thinking goes on. It's, it's crazy mm-hmm. um, in the sense of, what we did to the American diet and what the result is, which is, you know, basically promulgate this dietary wisdom that appears to arguably drives both obesity, diabetes, and then all the diseases that associate with obesity and diabetes, which includes heart disease, stroke, cancer, and Alzheimer's. I remember my father, when I was in high school, was diagnosed with diabetes type 2, and that was in the late 80s. And so he was put on a low sugar, uh, low fat, and then I guess it was just high carbs was the rest right. for his, for his um, you know, health. And then I remember in the 90s when I was in college, um, we had a nutrition researcher come to, I was a collegiate swimmer, and come and talk to us. And I remember this verbatim. Because she said we could eat whatever we wanted as long as there was no fat. So that meant chocolate was out, but we could eat gummy bears or gummy worms. And I remember thinking, I don't want gummy worms. Um, But it it was all about you need to look for that zero next to fat content and nothing else mattered was what she said. I have an American Heart Association pamphlet from the 1990s in which they give just that advice. And they say, you know, you should replace high-fat snacks with um, low-fat snacks, which can include, you know, crackers and bread and sugary snacks and sweets. And so as long and you see the end product of this in, in all these health food bars that are everywhere now, and unfortunately my children get them far too often as well. Um, but they're basically low-fat candy bars. Mm-hmm. So you remove some of the fat, which also means that you're going to, digest this bar quicker. So the carbohydrates and the sugar that stay in it are going to be more quickly digested, which is going to be more problematic. And I often have this, it's called a discussion with my my wife, where I'm thinking, you know, our kids might be healthier if they ate Snickers bars than if they eat these health food bars, because the Snickers bars at least have dietary fat in them to slow down the digestion of the sugar and the refined grains. Um, it's a difficult argument to make, but again, physiologically, it makes sense. Again, ideally, they wouldn't eat either, but what we have now is this whole industry churning out these health food bars that are low-fat candy bars that are arguably worse for us than the high-fat candy bars they're supposed to replace. And couldn't isn't this what's leading to the whole idea of insulin resistance and um, diabetes that we're seeing right now? 
in our country. Well, that, and that's what, um, yeah. So diabetes rates, prevalence of diabetes has increased fivefold since the 1980s. So in 30 odd years, uh, the number of diabetics in America has quintupled. The percentage of diabetics has quadrupled. So those are remarkable numbers. And the question is, what's driving this? So the conventional wisdom is, okay, it's obesity, right? Because obesity rates have, have gone up about two and a half fold in that same time period. Um, and then why do we get fat? Because we eat too much and exercise too little. But one of the things I realized in my research was back in, from the, after the end of the Civil War, with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, from the 1870s to the 1920s or so, there was also a diabetes epidemic. And in some American cities, a number of Americans di uh, diagnosed with diabetes increased 15-fold during this period. And diabetes mortality, deaths from diabetes, increased dramatically. Now, some of this is what's called a diagnostic effect, certainly. So people started paying attention to diabetes. Men started getting um, life insurance exams. Mm -hmm. And the life insurance exams would diagnose diabetes. Um, new tools were developed to diagnose, to detect sugar in urine. Used to be that the physician's assistant had to taste the urine. So you could imagine mm -hmm. that the assistants at least were loath to do diabetes tests. Mm -hmm. um, but there was certainly, even the experts at the time said, look, there's the real number of diabetes has, cases increased tremendously. I, I, one of the things I did for uh, a book that I'm writing now is I got the uh, medical records from uh, the Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia, which is uh, one of the, if not the oldest hospital in the country, and they have their inpatient records back to the 1870s. And there were years in the 1870s where they didn't have a single case of diabetes. Okay, now they did not see a single case of diabetes all year, whereas you know, nowadays it, it's, it's this disease that's, that's overwhelming our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question is, what changed? And today they'll say, well, it's associated with obesity, right? So people are just eating more calories and they're not exercising enough. But back in the 1920s, they said, hey, look, this coincides with this equally dramatic increase in sugar consumption and the creations of the soft drink industry and the confectionery industry. And so, you know, in 1870s, Coca-Cola is the glimmer in, the glimmer in the eye of a pharmacist in Georgia, and by the 1920s, the Coke, you know, is, it's already the, the real thing and, and everyone's drinking it. So maybe it's the sugar. Mm -hmm. And then for a variety of reasons, Diabetes researchers led by one guy at uh, the Harvard, the, uh, Elliot Jocelyn, sort of the god of diabetes in the United States, decides it's not sugar. And he does it. You could go back. I, one of the things I did is reconstructed his thinking. It was very easy to do. I bought, you know, used copies of every version of this textbook from 1917 on. And he just had a few misconceptions. So, for instance, he, he didn't know that sugar was different in its chemical structure than the starch, you know, the glucose and starches. And so he would say, hey, look, the Japanese eat high-carb diets. They don't have a lot of diabetes. In fact, they've got virtually no diabetes. Therefore, it can't be sugar, which is a carbohydrate. What he didn't pay attention to is the Japanese actually ate no sugar, virtually no sugar. So it turns out sugar is a very viable 
hypothesis to explain increases in diabetes rates and a very viable causal agent of diabetes. And then in the 1960s, people start doing research on sugar, and lo and behold, it's very easy to cause this metabolic syndrome we talked about, insulin resistance in animals just by feeding them sugars. And um, yeah, the science completely fits the bill where you'd say, if, if we don't want people eating diabetes, we don't want them getting diabetes, get them off sugar, and then refined, highly refined grains. And once they have diabetes, the reason they're going to get heart disease is not because of saturated fat they're eating, but because of the sugar and refined carbs that they're being told they could eat as much as they want them because it doesn't have fat in it. Um, it's a very peculiar situation we've gotten ourselves into, and the question now is how do we get out of it? So, Gary, what what you're saying and what I think I read in your book is that eating fat doesn't make us fat. It's eating the carbs and eating the sugars is what's making us fat and also creating the metabolic syndrome that we have, which also then leads to insulin resistance. Tell me where exactly. I'm wrong. Okay. Exactly. If you... Um, if you take a biological view to this again instead of thinking this is a physics problem which is you know it's energy you consume more energy if you just take a biological perspective then the reason we get fat is because we raise insulin levels and when insulin levels are elevated insulin is this hormone we think of as regulating blood sugar but it also regulates fat accumulation. That's one way that it regulates blood sugars by making sure that when you have a carbohydrate-rich diet and blood sugar is going up, you're going to burn that, those carbs for fuel and store any fat that you may have consumed or you may have stored. So when insulin levels are elevated, you're storing fat in your fat tissue. And you have to lower insulin levels to get fat out and mobilize it for fuel. And again, this is sort of this conventional wisdom that's in the textbooks. Um, so the idea is that's what drives fat accumulation. Um, so the carbohydrates, in effect, regulate how much fat you're storing. And the more carbs you eat, the more fat you store. And it only takes a little bit. Like if I eat 150 calories of food a day, 150 bites of food a day, and only burn off 149 of it, and the last 10 to 20 calories get stuck in my fat tissue, that's enough to make me gain, you know, 20, 40 pounds over 20 years. So I could get obese just by that tiny bit of food, that one bite of food ending up blocked away in my fat tissue. And that's pretty much regulated by what the carbs in our diet are doing to our insulin levels. And so the idea is dietary fat is actually what you want to be eating if you're overweight and obese, diabetic, or moving towards diabetes, because that's the food that you can metabolize and store without requiring insulin. So you replace the carbs in your diet with fat, and now you've got this high-fat diet that's supposed to give you heart disease, but what you find out in clinical trials and experiments, when you eat that diet, not only do you lose weight, but all your heart disease risk factors get better. This metabolic syndrome that we're talking about seems to go away. And everything improves. The problem is you're now doing something that your doctor thinks will kill you. <laughs> Minor issue. Um, and often when I, you know, again, I, I 
get emails from people saying, look, I did this and my numbers are amazing and I've lost all this weight, but my doctor thinks I'm crazy. And I say, look, give me his address. I will mail him for him or her personally a copy of my book. Um, and maybe they'll read it and understand what just happened to you. Instead of just dealing with this cognitive dissonance and believing that this is somehow going to kill you, they, they'll take the effort to understand why all these wonderful things have happened when you've removed the carbohydrates and replaced them with fat, even saturated fat. So let me see if I understand this. So when you eat fats, what happens is that we don't need insulin to digest those fats. So it keeps our insulin levels down. And that insulin level is what uh, triggers us to get the metabolic syndrome if it's around so much or later on insulin resistance? Well, you can think of, of metabolic syndrome as this condition called insulin resistance. That's okay. kind of what it is. So when you're insulin resistant, with that, well, let's talk about what insulin does first. One of the things insulin does is it, it, it facilitates the entrance of glucose into your cells, blood sugar, so that blood sugar can be burned for fuel. So you eat a carb-rich meal, you secrete insulin in response. As your blood sugar starts going off, so high blood sugar is toxic. Your body doesn't like that. So the insulin works to basically get that blood sugar into cells and get it burned for fuel. Um, if you become insulin resistant, that means that to do the job I just described requires more insulin than it did when you weren't insulin resistant. So your cells, your your muscle cells, your skeletal muscle, your organs, um, they don't like having to burn all this blood sugar, mm -hmm. okay? They don't like it either because it creates all kinds of problems. So the insulin's telling them to burn the blood, to burn the glucose. They're resisting it, in effect. This is, you know, I'm personifying cells here, but mm -hmm. bear with me. And so you secrete more insulin to do the same job. Um, so it's a job, so your blood, you, your body doesn't like having the glucose high blood sugar in the bloodstream, so it tries to get rid of it. The cells don't like burning it because it's toxic to the bloodstream, it's also toxic to the cells. So they resist it, and you respond by pumping out more insulin, and now you're insulin resistant. You're, it's called hyperinsulinemic, your insulin levels are elevated, okay, from, for higher than they should be for longer periods in the day they should be, than they should be. And when your insulin levels are elevated, you store fat, you don't burn it. Okay? Mm -hmm. And all this is response to the carbohydrates in the diet. Basically, your body doesn't want to eat these foods. The nutritionists will say, oh, carbohydrates are the primary fuel for the body, but they're the primary fuel because they're primarily what we eat, because we've been told to eat them. Mm -hmm. If you don't eat them, then fatty acids become the primary fuel for your body. And you want to burn fatty acids, A, because your body does it very efficiently, your cells do it efficiently, your heart does it efficiently, um, your liver will convert some of these fatty acids into to molecules called ketones, which your brain will burn very happily. Everything works fine. And because you're burning the fat, you're not storing it, you're not getting fatter. Mm-hmm. So the carbohydrates just set up this hormonal environment in which you tend to store fat and accumulate it day in and day out and get fatter and fatter. If you don't want to do that, you don't eat the carbohydrates. That's just sort of the inch. And in the process, I said because they're driving up insulin, 
they, they, so they, um, and you're, you're secreting insulin in response to the carbohydrates. This insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome are also sort of a carbohydrate intolerance problem. Um, the initial problem probably comes from the sugars in the diet. Like I said, there's a lot of evidence to support that. Um, so you start eating sugars, uh, sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, and the sugars are, are composed of two different carbohydrates, glucose and fructose. Fructose is what makes it sweet. And the fructose gets metabolized mostly in the liver. And again, apparently our livers don't appreciate having large amounts of fructose dumped on them. You know, you drink a glass of apple juice, you're going to get the fructose from about you know, four, five, six apples delivered, you know, however quickly it takes you to drink that eight-ounce glass as opposed to however quickly it might take you to eat four, five, six apples, even if you were wanted to eat six apples in one sitting, right? Um, so our livers respond by trying to turn this fructose into fat, triglycerides. Um, it appears to cause the liver itself to become insulin resistant, and then that appears to cause this sort of systemic insulin resistance. So you could conceivably get rid of the insulin resistance by never consuming sugar. But the insulin resistance, is the, the, the resistance is to the insulin secreted from these other carbohydrates in the diet. And so again, uh, you know, if you wanted to fix the whole metabolic disruption, including the obesity and type 2 diabetes that comes along with it or follows along from it, then you might have to remove virtually all of the carbs too to do that. So you're saying that to reverse the insulin resistance, you have to remove sugar completely? Um, well, I don't know if it has to be completely. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm saying sugar, the evidence to me is compelling that sugar is the most likely suspect mm -hmm. for causing insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. But again, I'm, I'm biased. You know, um, but that would be the first thing I do. It's certainly the easiest thing to do, and it's hard to make the argument that we need sugar, sweets in our <laughs> diet, that there's some biological necessity that, you know, it's not as though sugar is, is a, um, an essential carbohydrate that if you don't eat, you will die from some deficiency disorder. Um, but the sugar industry likes to think it is. Okay. It certainly tastes good. Well, and it does. And so what about, you know, if, if people go with the program that you have, you know, put together and they're eating more protein and fats, but it's really about getting rid of the carbohydrates and especially the sugars, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's why in an ideal world, my book is called Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. In an ideal world, I would have called it just why we get fat, because the argument I'm making is it's the refined grains and sugars and probably easily digestible starches as well that make us get fat. So that's, that's the fundamental argument. Um, it's not about the dietary. And if they make us get fat, they, they almost assuredly cause diabetes and heart disease, and et cetera, as well. So they're the problems with modern diets. Western diets are often known. So it's not the saturated fat content. You often see people refer to the high-fat Western diet. It happens to be a high-refined grain, high-sugar 
diet that appears to be the problem, and the fat is just something we also eat, um, but is arguably harmless and maybe even beneficial. Um, so the first step in, in eating healthy, I would argue, is getting rid of sugar. Step two would be getting rid of you know the highly refined grains. Um, now the question is, what do you replace it with? And again, if you're obese or diabetic, is this enough to make you metabolically healthy again? Or if you have metabolic syndrome, and the answer is for some people it might be. Mm-hmm. But for many of us, probably not. And then you go to, um, you know, first of all, I think you should eat the higher fat foods anyway. So again, if you replace the sugar and fine grains, what do you, what do you, if you get rid of those, what do you replace it with? Well, you could eat, you know, uh, uh, keep it to being a very low fat diet, just replace it with green vegetables and salad greens and maybe some brown rice or uh, quinoa, some old world grains. And now you have a diet very similar to what Dean Ornish Mm-hmm. proposes as a healthy diet, and it could be. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I it probably is a rel- certainly a, a healthier diet than the standard American high sugar, high refined grain diet that we do eat. Um, or you could replace it with, uh, you know, more fish and more uh, vegetable oils, and um, now you've got something that's more of a Mediterranean diet or more of a South Beach diet. So you've still removed the sugar and the fine grains. And is that a healthy diet? And it's certainly healthier than what you were eating. Um, is it the healthiest diet? There's no way to tell without doing a randomized controlled trial, um, an experiment. When those experiments have been done, invariably the diet that appears to be the healthiest is the one that's the most counterintuitive, where you get rid of the sugar and the refined grains and the starches and you replace it with, you know, foods with a high fat, high saturated fat content. So now you're eating fattier meats and fattier fishes and fowl and cheeses and bacon and all these foods that we were taught to kill us. And this is, in effect, an Atkins-like diet. But when researchers have done experiments to test this diet against the South Beach diet or a low-fat sort of Ornish-like diet or a zone diet. This high-fat, high-saturated fat diet always comes out having the greatest improvement in heart disease risk factors and diabetes risk factors and usually the greatest weight loss. So it's, you know, if you just look at the experimental evidence, which is the best evidence we've got, then this is arguably the healthiest diet to eat. Are there long-term studies on the people that did do Atkins and where they are now, 10, 20 years later? No. No. So what we have are these observational studies where you, the nurse's health study at Harvard is perhaps the most famous one. So you start off with, uh, you know, 100,000 nurses and you ask 30-odd thousand of them or whatever the number is. You give them food frequency questionnaires. You try to assess what they're eating and how much they're eating and what they eat every week, and then you follow them for 10, 20, 30 years, and you look at what diseases they get and who dies, and then you try to make associations between the diseases and the it's called morbidity and mortality and what they were eating. And what you find when you do that in virtually all these studies is that people who ate mostly plant-based diets live longer than people who eat mostly meat-based diets and have less diseases. They have less heart disease, less diabetes. They tend to be leaner. Um, They have 
less cancer, they live longer, okay? So the way this is interpreted naively is that this means that plant-based diets are healthier. But these are very complicated studies to interpret because then if you ask your question, who eats a mostly plant-based diet? Or who, who become, who's a vegetarian in our society? And are they the same type of people who eat mostly meat diets or who eat meat-rich diets? And the only thing that's different between them is whether or not they choose to eat meat or choose to eat vegetables. And the answer is they're very different. And you could see this in the studies. So people who become vegetarians tend to be socio higher socioeconomic status, um, better educated, they have better doctors, they're healthier in all sorts of different ways. They have they they smoke less, they exercise more, they read more, they walk more, they do all these things differently that say, you know, they're they're just um they choose to be vegetarians or to eat mostly plant based diets because they're very health conscious people. And now the question is do they live longer and have less disease? Because these are very health conscious people in a lot of different ways. And there's enough evidence out there to suggest that this is the case. So you've got this <clears throat> quandary, this, this paradox, where you've got very good experimental trials that show that if you switch to an Atkins-like diet, which is a meat-rich diet, rich in saturated animal fats, you will be healthier for the next two years. So you have good evidence showing that, and you have bad evidence suggesting that if you were to eat a plant-based diet, you'd be healthier for the next 20 years. And the question is, how do you uh, reconcile those two different, you know, one kind of study says, boom, animal-based diets, all ethical, sort of moral, environmental issues aside, this is the healthiest diet for your body, not your mind. And then these poorly controlled observational studies in which anything could be happening that show that over 20 years you're better off on plant-based diets. And that's, that's one of the, the, the conflicts that we hope to get over. And for instance, even our nutrition science initiative, one of the, the fundamental issues we'll be addressing, although it might take 10 to 20 years to address it in carefully controlled trials. Okay. And um, so... Just to wrap up, a couple takeaways that you had mentioned was first, just get rid of sugar. And that, I mean, that one's in, in, nutritionally, nobody can really argue with that. The other was get rid of um, highly refined grains out of your diet. And then would it be then the eat higher fat foods? Well, here's one place I would go. Once you do that, now you Michael Pollan's advice to eat food is mm -hmm. very good. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as long as you're eating food, but you're staying away from sugars and refined grains, you're in much better shape, okay? Mm -hmm. They're not food-like substances, but real food. Um, the only place you're going to run into trouble is with the question of fruit. Mm -hmm. Fruit's food, right? Um, and again, if you're overweight, obese, diabetic, and you don't want to be, then I would argue that... Uh, the benefits of fruit are completely oversold and the negative aspects that it's, you know, high in carbohydrates and relatively high sugar compared to any other foods you could eat um, suggests that you should, that fruit should be avoided as well. And most people who eat the way, uh, following the 
precepts that I've been discussing. So these include people who eat paleo diets, you know, the so-called caveman diet or low-carb diets. Um, the fruits that they will consume a lot are berries because they're relatively low in sugar and low in glycemic index, and they have a lot of antioxidants, which may or may not be good for you, but if they are good for you, then berries are the place to get them. Um, so um, that would be the advice. So you're getting rid of sugar, getting rid of refined grains, um, eating foods uh, that you know ideally are rich in, in healthy fats, and healthy fats, I would argue, include saturated fats, as long as they come from nature originally and weren't created in a factory. Um, and then, um, you know, moderating fruit consumption. Well, Gary, thank you so much for being a guest today. It's really fascinating. Well, Corin, thank you for having me. It's yeah. been great. This is Corinne Motokaitis. You've been listening to How She Really Does It. My guest today is Gary Taubes, and he is the author of Why We Get Fat. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at HowSheReallyDoesIt.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.